period of time from the moment the angel told him his wife was going to conceive to this point. And at this point, verse number 67, Zacharias, who was the father of John the Baptist, his wife, who was Elizabeth, he begins to speak. And here's what he says. Verse 67, and his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and he hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people, by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet unto the way of peace. Verse number 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed Everyone say redeem. He has redeemed his people. Praise God. For a few moments this morning, I want to speak to you about the subject of redemption. Redemption. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your power, for your ability. We thank you for the presence that we feel in this place. And I pray that your word would help us, direct us, encourage us, strengthen us. Amen. We give to you thanks and we praise you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Redemption. What does it mean to be redeemed? Amen. One scripture said the redeemed of the Lord should say so. And so that means that we should have a voice in testifying about the good things that God has done in us. I know today you may be here and you may be here under duress and you may have some turmoil in your life and you may wish things could be different. And I understand that. I am empathetic towards that. But even in the midst of that, you can have a praise on your lips because of God's doings in your life. Amen. You can be at the very lowest and still God, give God praise and magnify him. Amen. And his presence is here in the house of God today. And so if the redeemed of the Lord are supposed to say so, that means that we need to say something. <laughs> we need to say something, brother and sister. We need to say that God is good. How about that? We need to say that God is great and he's greatly to be praised. And I've come in the house of God today to worship him. I don't want to say it softly. 
I want to say it loud. I want to be proud of the fact that God has done great things in my life. I know I haven't measured up all the way. I'm still striving for that. That's the rule of Paul. Keep striving. Keep reaching. But this I do know. God has been very, very good to me. And I have nothing to be disappointed in him. So I'm not going to say it with a soft voice, but I'm going to lift my voice and I'm going to trumpet it and say, God, I want to testify that you've been faithful. Has he ever been unfaithful to you? I've been unfaithful, but he's been faithful. Amen. I want to talk about his goodness and the fact that he is a God that brings healing and strength to us. I want to say it when I'm on the mountaintop, and sometimes there are mountaintop experiences when everything is going great, but I also want to say it in the valley because I know that God walks with me in the valley. The enemies of Israel, they had a, a battle, and they lost the battle, and they said this, we lost the battle because we fought in the hills, but if we can get them in the valley, he's only a God of the hills. He's not a God of the valley. That was a big, big mistake because God is the God of the hills, but he's also a God of the valley. He'll fight with you when you're elevated, but he'll also fight with you when you're depressed. And so if you're in the house of God and you're at the mountaintop or in the valley or in between, there is a God that is faithful to you. All you have to do is lift up your hands and your voice and say, God, I'm here in the house of God today to worship you. God, let's clap our hands and thank the Lord that he is faithful. Amen. James said there is no variableness, nor there is a shadow of turning in him. He is consistent. And so I want to say it to those that are rich. I want to say it to those that are poor. I want to say it to every nation. Amen. Every race and every tongue that there is value in God reaching out to us. What does it mean when we say redemption? What are we talking about? The first idea happens, really, Job is the one that speaks about it from the very beginning. And if you look at a chronological order of Scripture, Genesis and Job, Job somewhere is in the chronology of Genesis. And Job says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Praise God. So Job had something to say about it from ancient times. But we really get a, a fuller definition when we look into the Old Testament law as redemption pertained to property. The idea first appears when it has to do with laws governing property. In Leviticus chapter 25, verses 25 through 27 it talks about laws that govern property. And this principle is the same principle that applies to Naomi. When she left Bethlehem for Moab, she was in Bethlehem. There was a drought in the land, and so she thought she would go to Moab, and there she would uh, retain some sustenance. And we know that when she went to Moab, that her husband died. And all of her son-in-laws died. And so she made her way back to Moab. When she got, or she, she left Moab and made her way back to Bethlehem. When she got back to Bethlehem, the property that she owned obviously had been sold. And Elimelech, her husband, sold that parcel. When she came back from Moab, she could purchase the land. But it had to be done 
by what was known as a kinsman redeemer. In other words, it could be bought back, but it had to be somebody that was connected to her. There had to be familial ties, relationships of family, and she could redeem it or she could buy it back if there was someone in her family that would do that. Boaz redeemed the parcel of land. She walked away from a piece of property in Bethlehem thinking that the grass would be greener on the other side. And so she went to Moab, and in Moab, she's completely disconnected from the people of God, the family of God. Things fall apart, and she realizes, I need to go back to Bethlehem. But in order to do so, she has to go back as a, a stranger. She has no property. She has no ability to retain that parcel of land unless somebody was going to buy it back. And there is a great biblical story in that in the story of Ruth and Naomi returning and Boaz repurchasing that piece of property. In Leviticus chapter 25 and verse number 47, there were even laws concerning your own life and your own servitude. In Leviticus 25 and verse number 47, if you had to sell yourself into bondage, the scripture said, if a foreigner living among you becomes rich, and an Israelite becomes poor and sells himself to the foreigner or to the foreigner's family, he may be redeemed by one of his brothers, his uncle, nephew, or anyone else who is a near relative. He may also redeem himself if he can find the money. So if you found a situation where the foreigner becomes rich and the leverage now is against you because you have become poor, a family member, a, an uncle, a nephew, or anyone else that's a near relative could buy you back and get you out of that situation, or you could get yourself out of the situation if you could retain the funds. You could come up with the money in order to do that. And so from the start, the word redemption, when, when we say the word redemption, from the very beginning in the way that it is defined, it is defined in a sense of deliverance. In other words, you could be delivered from poverty if there was somebody close to you that could purchase you back. You could be delivered from being a social outcast if there was a family member that would step up and provide the funds that would change your situation. So deliverance is a word that is closely connected to redemption. So whether it was property, whether it was yourself having to sell yourself into bondage, there were ways out in the law that said there is a way out of this. There are rules that govern that, that gets you out of your situation, that redeems you or delivers you from your situation. Is there anybody here that's been delivered from something that you would be able to say, I know what you're talking about. God delivered me from that. It might not have been property. It might not have been property, but it was a deliverance from something. Amen. I don't know if Brother Rob is here. Uh, is Bro Brother Rob is here. Brother Rob has a testimony of being delivered from cigarettes. God miraculously delivered him from cigarettes. And so you can say God 
redeemed me from that because I was in something that was a bondage to me. It was a bondage of nicotine, and God delivered me from that, or he redeemed me from that. There are testimonies like that all over the sanctuary here. God pulled me out of something, delivered me from something, redeemed me from something. Amen. Has God delivered you from something that you are worthy to, that you, you would be willing to say, God is worthy? <laughs> God, God did the work, and, and it's attributed to what he has done. So from the very beginning, there were laws that governed this. God then expands that understanding because he himself becomes the deliverer or the redeemer of Israel. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then you have Jacob's 12 sons that become Israel, and they find themselves in Egypt in bondage. God becomes their deliverer. In Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse number 26, Moses is praying for the people after their worship to a golden calf. And he's praying to God. And he says, I prayed therefore unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, destroy not thy people and thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed through thy greatness, which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt, with a mighty hand. Moses said, I know you want to destroy this people. You're angry with them, but you can't do it because he intercedes. You can't do it because you brought them out with a mighty hand. They were in bondage. Their life was in bondage, full of difficulty. The Egyptians ruled over the Hebrews with an iron fist. They tried to destroy their offspring, but there was a cry that went up, and God heard their cry, and he called to a man by the name of Moses out of a burning bush, and he said to Moses, I want you to go to Egypt, and I want you to lead my people out of bondage because I'm going to be a deliverer. I'm going to redeem them from the hand of the enemy. And God did it with a mighty hand. He led them out in power with signs and authority and miracles. And he led them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And what he was revealing to them was this. I'm going to be your deliverer. I'm going to be your redeemer. I'm going to redeem you from the hand of the enemy. You know what? Miriam picked up a tambourine on the other side of the Red Sea and she said, I'm going to worship God because God saved us from where we were. He took us out of a land of enslavement and bondage and difficulty and he's bringing us to a promised land. God did it. God did it. He redeemed us. He brought us out. Amen. Second Samuel, this continued throughout Israel's history, even into the reign of the kings. Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 23, David prayed to God about building him a house and said, And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself and to make him a name? And to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their God. God becomes 
the deliverer. He redeems them from plagues and sickness so that their physical well-being would be restored. He redeems them or he delivers them from calamity so that the things that they once possessed are restored. There's a song that is a chorus that has been sung um, going back to the enemy's camp to take back what the devil stole from me. And, and that's a fascinating that's a fascinating take, and I understand, because the devil, the devil steals. The scripture said that he comes to rob, steal, and destroy. And so he steals from us the blessings and the victory of God. I get that part because that's very, very clear in the scripture, right? The enemy has come for to but steal, rob, and destroy. And so he, he removes through his activities, the blessings of God. I understand that. But I'm not so sure that going back to the enemy's camp is, is where you go to get it back. <laughs> that's, that's my contention with the song, okay? <laughs> I know he steals from, he takes from us, he removes from us all the blessings of God and he draws us away from the goodness of God because the goodness of God is the light of God and the light of God is where the blessings are and where the blessings are, there's all kinds of amazing things. There's joy, peace, long-suffering, praise God. There's a lot of good things over there within the light of God. What the devil tries to do is pull us away from those things. He doesn't give us anything better. He just, it dissipates from us because we're not close to God like we should be. When you get close to the master, there are benefits that come to you. When you get farther away from Jesus, then the benefits are not there and they're replaced by what the devil tries to market and tell you is a better product. It's never a better product. It is never a better product. It is always a lie. The devil cannot give you what God can give you. It's it's going to be inferior. It's going to be limited. It is not going to measure up. But what God gives you is something that is eternal. What God gives you is something that is heavenly. What God gives you is something that is powerful. Hallelujah. Praise God. And so going back to the enemy's camp is not what, where you're going. If, if, if you have joy over here with God and you're going to go to the enemy's camp, you're not going to get joy in the enemy's camp. That's my contention. I'm not a songwriter and I'm not going to change the song and we haven't sang the song in forever. But, you know, you get something up in your head and every once in a while you start humming it. My contention is this. I don't know how you would change the lyrics, but here's my point. When you leave God and you go this way back to the enemy's camp, the only thing you find in the enemy's camp is dysfunction and destruction. And so you don't want to go back to the enemy's camp to get anything because there's nothing good there. What you want to do is go back to God's camp and say, this is, this is where the blessing was and I left the blessing. I'm coming back to the blessing because I know, I know this is where I need to be. Praise God. Praise God. And so 
the things that I once possessed are restored to me. If you've lost the peace of God, you're in the right place for the peace of God to be restored to you because this is where restoration takes place. It is in the anointing and the power and the presence of God. If you've lost it, you can get it back because God can give it back to you because he's the redeemer. He's the deliverer. So the things that I once possessed can be restored. I believe that. Does anybody believe that? Man, sometimes people come to the house of God, they've got flat nothing. They had something at one point, but they come to God, they've got nothing. And, and this to me is one of the greatest miracles that could ever take place is when from flat nothing... God starts to work in their life and, and elevate them to the point where now he's restoring the things. Doesn't take away the sting because sin, sin is destructive and we should all hate sin. And so the sting of sin may still be there because there's family relationships and things that have broken down. And, and when you get to the bottom, you find yourself with nothing then God starts to build and restore some, some things. And the things that you once possessed, God redeems those things and places them back in your life. And so God becomes a deliverer and a redeemer to Israel. The land that they lost, he, he brought wealth back to them. Slavery and poverty, he restored their status. When they were under extreme duress, God became the one that reached out to them. And I think this is what it means in the Psalms when the writer says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Because it is an absolute polemical, polemical meaning it's divisive in some ways. It's polemical. It is making a statement. When the redeemed of the Lord say so, what they're saying is God is worthy and the devil is not. And so it's polemical. It is a testimony that ascribes to God's ability. I believe every time you worship and you praise God, it is a polemical statement because what you're saying is, I'm worshiping God, not anything else. I'm worshiping God, not idols. I'm magnifying God, not anything else. He's a sovereign God and he's worthy of my praise and everything else is not worthy of my praise. And so I'm going to give to him adoration. This is what it means. When when the redeemed of the Lord say so. When you testify to somebody, you are saying God has done marvelous things and it's the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Why? Because he is a God that delivers. All through the scripture we find this. Noah and his family are delivered from the flood. Abraham is delivered as he is about to give his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Matter of fact, in that passage of scripture, he calls him Jehovah Jireh, the God that brings provisions. Jacob could say, God delivered me from the wrath of my brother Esau. Joseph could say, God delivered me from prison and plucked me out of being a castaway. Moses could say, he delivered me from the hand of Pharaoh. 
Miriam could sing. He delivered us from the army of Egypt at the Red Sea. Joshua and Caleb could say, he delivered us from wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. God brought us out. Gideon can say, he delivered us from the hand of the Midianites with the sound of the trumpet. Samson could say, he delivered me from my failure, grinding at the mill. David could say, he delivered me from the lion, the bear, and the giant. And Job could say, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. All of these individuals in the scripture recognize that there was a value to a God that was a deliverer. And I've come to preach just a few moments here this morning and say today there is still value in a deliverer that can pluck you out of whatever your situation may be. We would not be a church if we didn't believe that God's arm was not very, very strong to reach into every situation and deliver you from difficulty. We better preach that with everything that is in us. We better say so with everything that is in us because that's what revival is all about. God reached out to each and every one of us and brought us to the place of where we are. He has discipled us, matured us, given to us the opportunity to sit with him in heavenly places. I am not going back to the weak and beggarly elements of the world, but I am here today to say that if he can do it for me, he can certainly do it for you because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, praise God. Why don't you just take a moment right now and thank the Lord. Thank the Lord for his goodness in your life. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. The Bible's not a book for just yesterday, but it's a book for today. He can redeem us from all of these distresses. That is what redemption means. And deliverance is a key word in that understanding. But there is something that is even greater than some of our distresses that we may face. And that is the human condition. I believe that God touches us in a, a myriad of ways. He touches us emotionally. He touches us physically. Many times when we're asking for prayer, we're talking about the physicality of the position. Uh, but he, he touches us emotionally. He touches us psychologically. Amen. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of components that make up the human condition. I believe that God knows how to touch us completely in a holistic way. Amen. There are times that I've prayed, God, I would love you to touch my physical body, but my spiritual walk with you is more important than my physical body. Amen. I would rather be spiritually right and salvation be secured in my life than to be physically healthy and there not be any salvation. Praise God. We better get our priorities right. We better make sure our prayers are right. Amen. Is anybody hearing what I'm saying? I, I want my mind, I would, I would want my mind to be right and be physically handicapped. For it would be better to, to be that way than to have all my functioning faculties and my mind be completely spun. I feel for people that are walking on the streets because you can tell they have been touched in their mind. God, help us to understand that you're a God that touches every part of who we are. It's just not my 
physical healing that I'm praying for, but I'm praying for salvation. I'm praying for strength. I want you to separate me to the kingdom of God. I want to be spiritually right in the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. Praise God. And so God, God can take us out of our distresses, but what's more important is the human condition that we are in. Can, can God do a redemption of another kind? He can take the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. But can he take an individual out of bondage personally? Is there a redemption from sin and death? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Paul asked that question, and he, he was very depressed about it in Romans chapter 7. He said, I can't help myself because I'm no longer doing the things I don't want to do. It is sin inside me that is stronger than I am that makes me do these evil things. In verse number 21, he said, it seems to be a fact of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. And he, he comes to a conclusion. There are some people that, that have an understanding that life is not tarnished at all when you are born, but it is something that is shaped in your life and that you become that way. That this is not the biblical understanding. The biblical understanding is not that you were born into perfection. There, there are theological discussions and people have been burned at the stake for some of this kind of discussion. discussions where people have suggested that you could be born and it's a matter of molding and shaping the environments that are around you. That's what makes you either a good or a bad person. And while I will acknowledge that a person that is born in a stable environment has a better opportunity to becoming what they need to be rather than being in a terrible environment. It's not all about the environments. We, the, the biblical understanding of this is not ad adaptation. We all adapt to our situations. But the biblical understanding is there is a severe human problem. There's a severe human condition that is called sin and fallen nature. And from the very beginning, there is a fallenness that not only impacts uh, the world. Creation is fallen. That's why we live in a world that is, is very fragile. Earthquakes, hur hurricanes, natural evil, and all kinds of stuff. There's also a human condition where there is moral evil that enters into the picture because we are humanity, and as humanity, there was a fall, and there is a fallenness to each and every one of us, and that is the problem. That's the biblical understanding. Now, you can get other worldviews, and you'll have to figure out, okay, which is the best one. And, and for my money, I think the best one is the biblical one where David said, behold, I was born in iniquity. I was shapen in it. I was born into sin and I was shapen in iniquity. When I came into the world, something was amiss. I might have looked like a cute little baby and all that and everybody laughed and, and thought that was great, but ultimately I was a sinner. The Bible says all have come short of the glory of God. All have sinned, every single one of us, and we enter into life that way. And so there is a human problem from the very very, very beginning. When I was a child and I was being raised as a child, I came under the covering of my parents' walk with God. Thank God for godly parents who are in the house of God and their children are here all over this property. They come underneath your covering when they are infants and they are growing up. They have to make a determination at some point and there's a choice that they have to make. That happens to every single individual. We live in a world that wants 
wants to dilute sin and make everybody perfect. Everybody's not perfect. Everybody's got a sin problem. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. There is sin in my life that I'm going to have to deal with because it's part of my human nature. This is not popular anymore. This is not preached much anymore. But I'm telling you, this is what the Bible says. We've got a sin problem that enslaves us, that 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 puts us into bondage, and we need to get out of that situation. We need to be freed from that situation. There needs to be some liberty from that situation. How's that going to take place, and who's going to do that? Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I have been cursed under sin. Something is weighing me down, and I'm looking for a way from underneath this load, this domination and this curse of sin. I want to unchain myself from that dead body of sin and that curse. This curse that is on me, this fallenness, puts me in bondage to Satan. Jesus said this to Paul. He said, Paul, I'm calling you to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. So sin and the curse of sin puts me in bondage to Satan. And Satan uses that as a leverage because he knows the ultimate penalty is death. So there is sin, there is Satan, and there is death. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So through sin and the works of Satan, it brings death. And there is a dead body of sin that is attached to me. And the enemy will use it against me unmercifully. And I know that the end result is death. Somehow there has to be a way out of not only distress, but out of my human condition. Paul, when he's talking in Romans 7, he sounds completely confused about what is even going on. He's looking for an answer. He's trying to find a way to buy back some existence that resembles life because what he is in is not life. And he finds himself under this load and under duress and under stress and under condemnation and all of this. Somebody needs to pay the price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19 says, What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. There was a price that was paid through Jesus Christ and Calvary that said, I'm going to take you from that human sin condition, and I'm going to give you the ability to have life and life more abundantly. Jesus Christ paid the price. 
I said, Jesus Christ paid the price. Nobody else could pay the price, but Jesus paid the price. Wherever you were and whatever you needed in a buyback, God bought you back from wherever you were and said to Satan, I'm going to repossess and make that individual my property. I'm going to buy him. Amen. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24, though, says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption. Everyone say redemption. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. If Jesus Christ is going to pay the price, then what is the price <laughs> to redeem me? Amen. God can deliver you out of situations and distresses, but he can also deliver you from yourself and the sin that is in your life. What is that price? What does it take? What does it take to do that? Amen. What does it take to redeem you from sin and degradation and dysfunction? First Peter chapter one, verse 18 for as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation re received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> no amount of money could redeem you from your situation. Not silver, not gold. Nothing could take you from your vain conversation that you received by tradition of fathers and everything else that was handed down or passed down. The only thing that could redeem you from a sinful human condition is the, plesh, the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God. Here's how he did it. Which he hath purchased with his own blood. He purchased you. He bought you. He redeemed you, not with money, nor with the cattle on a thousand hills, but he redeemed you with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He was willing to give up one thing for another. He was willing to pay the price of his own blood for my freedom of sin, domination, Satan, and death so that I don't have to carry the weight of sin and the depression around anymore. You better know that I'm so very grateful and thankful because I know that while I was a sinner, Christ died for the ungodly. I didn't have any money. I couldn't go to anybody. I couldn't seek Wall Street to give me a loan to buy me out of my situation. But Jesus Christ said, I'll go to Calvary. I'll shed precious blood that is able to wash and to cleanse from every sin. I don't care what you done. There's a God that is able to redeem you. Praise God. Amen. As the musicians come this morning, this, this, 
buyback, <laughs> this deliverance, this redemption is universal, meaning it's for everybody. You believe that? There should be no discrimination in the house of God. It's for everybody. Everybody. I'm continuing to pray. God, continue to make us a multicultural church because the church should look like everybody. Thank God for Filipinos, for Hispanics. Thank God for Nigerians. Thank God for Germans. And, and I'll just say this, right? Because if you get into all that stuff, thank God for, for, for half-breeds is not a good word. <laughs> okay, that's not good. M mixed races, okay? You may have, I mean, really, is there even such a thing as a a pure thing. The people that thought there was a pure race were the Nazis, and that was a failure. You can't get at any kind of pure thing. We're made up of all kinds of stuff. You could be half Samoan and half Russian. I don't know. There's all kinds of stuff that you can be. But that doesn't mean that you're discriminated against because of God's mercy and his power. And I just want to say this. If that's how you feel and you're sitting on that pew, me and you are going to butt heads because I don't believe that. I don't believe that's a scripture. It's not in the scripture. It's for everybody. Jesus even told the Jews, it's not just a Jewish thing. It's a church thing. It's for everybody. It's universal. It's universal. But it's also limited. It's offered to everybody, but you've got to believe the gospel. It's universal in its scope, but it's limited in that people have a choice to make. And if I've got a choice in this, then what do I need to do as we stand together? I've got to identify with the gospel, which means I need to repent of my sin. That's an identification with his death. I need to be baptized in his name. It's an identification in his burial. And I need to be and shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, which is an identification with his resurrection. Amen. When... The writer said, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. What he was saying is, redemption causes an action. Miriam exemplifies this when they come out of Egypt and they get to the Red Sea and God leads them through the Red Sea and they get on the other side. The redemption or the deliverance from Pharaoh's army through the Red Sea to the other side produces an action in Miriam. And she starts worshiping God. Now, I'm absolutely convinced of this. If God has redeemed you, you, you're not going to like this. This is a very controversial statement. Very, very controversial. And some people don't understand this. And so that's why it's very controversial. If God has redeemed you, you must be a worshiper. Because redemption produces an action. Very controversial. You're not going to worship God if you don't think much of redemption. You 
you just stand there with your hands folded, your arms not going to be lifted, there's nothing going to come out of your mouth if you don't feel like God has done great things for you. But if you feel like God has brought me a mighty, mighty long way and I shouldn't even be here because of his mercy and his grace, it produces an action that says I'm going to worship God, I'm going to testify, I'm going to give him praise, I'm going to thank him for every victory, every battle that was won, every failure that I came through. I'm going to magnify him because I value I value the deliverance that he's given to me. Praise God. Somebody lift your hands and be the redeemed of the Lord. And in the house of God, say so. Yes, 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 yes. The staggering price tag gives way to great gratitude and it produces a response. If you're thankful about what God has done for you, you'll worship God in the same manner at the same measure of what God has richly done for you. You know I worship right there in the well. I'm not doing that just so that I can be seen by everybody. I want God to know I really, really shouldn't even be behind this pulpit, but thank God that you look beyond all of my failures and short comings and difficulties and you thought I could actually be something. You redeemed me from a lot of things. You delivered me from a lot of things and therefore I'm going to praise you because I've got great, great gratitude. Amen. Well, let me, let me just finish with this verse. Psalm 107 verse 1. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered them out of the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their troubles, and he delivered them out of their distresses, and he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city of habitation. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Oh, that somebody would praise him. Oh, that somebody would lift up their hands and lift up their voice. Oh, that somebody would be thankful for what God has richly done. Is there anybody thankful in the house of God today? Three times in Psalm 107, verse 31, we get this verse. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. When, he ca when you catch that he redeems you from your distress, when you catch that he frees you and redeems you from sin, bondage, and death, how dare you sit in a church pew when the precious blood of Christ has been poured out to you that forgave you and washed you and cleansed you from every sin. How dare you sit there and think there is nothing that is worthy of praise and adoration and 
and worship. Hallelujah. If you've got breath to breathe, you ought to thank God for the breath to breathe that I'm standing in the house of God. There is power. There is power in the blood. There is power in his authority. you to go back to the worst scenario worst scenario in your life the thing that we like to try to cover over and put a facade on it because we don't want anybody else to know I want you to go way back to that worst situation Think about it for a minute. Come on, think about it for a minute. Let's not play games here this morning. Let's, let's really think about this. The lowest of your human low. Where there, go ahead. Where there was hate, now love, now abide. Where there was what? Confusion. Confusion. Where there was confusion. Now what's happening? I'm walking oh, see, see, with see. Jesus. I'm a child of the King. 
Come on, let's thank him. Thank him. Thank him. It's all because of you. It's all because of you.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Clap your hands unto the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. Praise God. Every once in a while, somebody will ask, what do you mean when you talk about Project 39? We thought it would be really good to call it Project 39 because it represents Acts chapter 2 and verse 39. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Amen. Did he bring you from afar off? <laughs> did, he bring you, did he bring you from afar off? Praise God, but now he's making you to sit in heavenly places. One more time, let's lift up our hands and thank the Lord together. God, I thank you for your redemption, your power, your ability. Praise God, thank you that I can give to you praise and worship you. Hallelujah. Have your way, Lord, have your way. We give to you thanks, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Before we leave here today, let's pray for a few special prayer requests. Helen is here with her brother, who is from Arkansas, and they lost their father yesterday in Los Angeles. They were able to go down there and be with him for just a few moments and pray with him. So we want to pray that God bring strength and comfort to them. Amen. Sister Carol Merle is in ICU. We want to pray for her. You will see this week's prayer request that will be projected. And Sister Frida, Sister Wilson, Sister Barbara Wilson. Okay, so she's in a coma. All right, hospice and in a coma. So we want to pray for her as well. Amen. Praise God. If you have a prayer request that you want to join with all of these, amen. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. Let's join together and pray together. Lord, we love you and praise you. Touch Nene in Jesus' name. I pray, God, you bring strength to her. Hallelujah. Amen. You're a God that is well able to do above and beyond what we could even think or ask. Bring comfort and peace and strength. Hallelujah. This is why we stand in the house of God. This is why we lift our hands, not as a part of of a service, but we recognize and know that virtue and strength and encouragement flows even while we're praying for other people. Hallelujah. I thank you. It not only goes to them, but it flows to us. It goes both ways. I ask God that your strength and your anointing would touch every, every petition, every person that is in a hospital room, every person trying to recover from situations and circumstances. I pray for those who have died and gone on in grief, has entered into the picture that you're a God that is faithful to individuals. We thank you and praise you and worship you and we speak your name because there's power in your name and there's strength and anointing in your name. We say in Jesus' name, now let's thank him for what we may not see, but we know that he is a God that is working Praise God. Continue to work. Continue to work even when we don't see it. Amen. In Jesus' name. My, my, I feel good in the Holy Ghost this morning. Praise God. Praise God. You know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to walk away from this place thankful. Not unthankful. Not unthankful. The world's marketing unthankfulness, but I'm going to go away thankful.
Hallelujah. Thankful for his touch. Thankful for his ability. Amen. Let's be back in the house of God tonight. We'll be in the well at 530 for prayer. Evangelistic service tonight. Amen. God bless you. Greet somebody on your way out. Tell them it was very good to see them. Amen. Don't let anybody get out of here without an encouragement, a connection. Amen.